Whistleblower Report, exposing lies, deceptions, and all that has assaulted our way of life. We must take back our freedom and live as God designed in a free America that honors our Constitution and our Creator. Our experts in medicine, ministry, law, military, environment, and education empower us to grow together as a nation. such a time as this, the Whistleblower Report offers truth and solutions. Welcome to the Whistleblower Report. This is Dr. Lee for America here with the Faith Report and the personal story that Dr. Mike Eden will share with us, as many of you may already know. Dr. Mike Eden is an a pharma insider whistleblower. He was a career in he had a career in the pharmaceutical industry, rising to the level of chief scientist and vice president worldwide for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals in respiratory pharmacology. There's no one better to speak out about all that was done in the COVID pandemic that has caused so much death and destruction. But as a man of faith, that really wasn't something Dr. Eden thought was very important. He had been active in the choir as a young man, as a child, but he had grown away from the church over the course of his life in science and really questioned whether faith was really that important. But in the course of the COVID pandemic, things began to change for him personally. And in the summer of 2021, I actually had a very interesting conversation with him when I first met him. And he talked about the fact that while he appreciated the fact that I felt a calling to do the work I was doing, and I, my faith was very important to me, he didn't see that faith was all that important. And he talked about the fact that he'd been a member of the Anglican Church earlier in his life, but had gone away from it. And then a few months later, we were continuing our conversations and work together on the COVID issues. And lo and behold, he shared with me an experience that he had, which he'll tell us about. And I realized that something was happening and he was changing. He will share that story, but in sharing the story, he drew a parallel with what happened to the Pharisee Saul on the road to Damascus that led to Saul's conversion an acceptance of Jesus Christ as his savior and led to Saul becoming the apostle Paul, one of the greatest apostles preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and the known world at that time. 
And there's a story of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. He's actually told in Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. And then Paul himself retells the story in Acts chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, and Acts 26, verses 12 through 18. You may want to look those up and reread them. But keep in mind, and I'll tell you the story of, of Saul just to remind everyone in just a moment. But keep in mind, when God brings a person to faith in Christ, he already knows how God wants to use that person in, his, in the service to his kingdom. And sometimes people are slow to understand God's plan and may even resist it. But that doesn't change the fact that God knows how he wants to use us and that a person's past no matter how bad the things we may have done in the past may be, a person's past does not matter to Christ. He is more interested in a person's future in the work that God and Christ have for that person. So even though Saul had been one of Jesus' cruelest enemies, he became one of his strongest proponents as he preached the gospel after his conversion. God's forgiveness is full and final, no matter how bad we think we are. And God often chooses the most unlikely people to accomplish his task. I mean, Saul was a Pharisee, and he was persecuting Jesus's followers. Over and over in the Bible, God picks flawed men and women to help carry out his plan of salvation. The lesson is that the power comes from God, not from each of us as a person. And when God calls us to a task, he equips us for it. Paul received the Holy Spirit along with the truth of the gospel so that he could share it with others. Paul could not have achieved this remarkable accomplishment in his own strength. He was empowered by God. And Paul himself says in the letter to Philippians, verse 13 in chapter 4, quote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, end quote. So remember, God chooses the people to serve him, no matter what our past may be, and brings us under his strength and the fire of the Holy Spirit. So what happened on the road to Damascus that parallels some of what Dr. Eden is going to talk about? Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee in Jerusalem after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he swore to wipe out the new Christian church. As it turned out, his background as a Pharisee ended up being, and God knew this, perfect qualifications to be an evangelist for Christ after the conversion. Saul was well-versed in Jewish culture and language. His upbringing in Tarsus made him familiar with the Greek language and culture as well. His training in Jewish theology helped him connect with the Old Testament and how that Old Testament connected with the New Covenant, 
the gospel according to Jesus Christ, which became the New Testament. And as a skilled tent maker, he could support himself. It was his life-changing experience on the Damascus Road that ultimately led to his baptism and instruction in the Christian faith, and he became the most determined of the apostles. He suffered brutal physical pain, persecution, and ultimately was put to death and martyred for his faith. He revealed his secret of enduring a lifetime of hardship for the gospel, as I just quoted. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And at the end of his life, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. On the road to Damascus, Saul and his companions were struck down by a blinding light. Saul heard a voice say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? When Saul asked who was speaking, the voice replied, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. All of this is described in Acts chapter 9, verses 4 through 6. At that time, struck on the road by the blinding light, Saul was blinded. His companions led him into Damascus, and for three days, Saul was blind and did not eat or drink. Meanwhile, Jesus appeared in a vision to a disciple in Damascus named Ananias and told Ananias to go to Saul. Ananias was afraid because he knew Saul's reputation as a merciless persecutor of followers of Christ. Jesus repeated his command, explaining that Saul was his chosen instrument to deliver the gospel to the Gentiles, to their kings and the people of Israel. So Ananias found Saul at Judah's house, praying for help. Ananias laid his hands on Saul, as Jesus had instructed, telling him Jesus had sent him to restore his sight and that Saul might be filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He arose and was baptized into the Christian faith. He ate, regained his strength, and stayed with the Damascus disciples three days. In that moment of fear, enlightenment, and regret, Saul understood that Jesus was the true Messiah and that he, Saul, had helped murder and imprison innocent people. Despite his previous beliefs as a Pharisee, he now knew the truth about God and was obligated to obey him. Paul's conversion proves what I said a few moments ago, that God can call and use and transform anyone he chooses, even the most hard-hearted. And note here that Jesus did not distinguish between his church and his followers and himself. Jesus told Saul that he had been persecuting Jesus. Anyone who persecutes Christians or the Christian church is persecuting Christ himself. 
So as we listen to Dr. Eden and his faith journey, think about all of the people who are persecuting Christians around the world today. And I would like for you, each of you listening, to reflect. The same Jesus who rose from the dead and transformed Paul wants to work in your life too. What could Jesus do through you if you surrendered as Paul did and as Dr. Eden himself has done and gave Jesus complete control over your life? Maybe God will call you to work quietly behind the scenes like the little known Ananias, or perhaps you will reach multitudes like the great apostle Paul, or perhaps you will become a spokesperson for today to save God's gift of life and liberty as Dr. Michael Yeadon has become, and he is reaching multitudes in his messages serving as a watchman on the wall to warn all of us of the dangers of what the globalists have planned and what the COVID shots have done to humanity. Dr. Eden, it's my pleasure to have you on the show today, my honor and privilege. Dr. Mike Eden and his personal story of a journey from scientists um, and skeptic about faith to a profound experience that has definitely brought him back to faith as he described it in a personal conversation with me. It was his Damascan moment. And I've just shared with you the biblical story of Saul on the road to Damascus and what happened. And so that will help help you better understand the experience that Dr. Eden is going to share with us. But let me, let me say that at the time I met Dr. Eden in the summer of 2021, it was July 2nd, 2021. I remember it very well because I was introduced to Dr. Yaden. Dr. McCullough had invited me and there were five of us on the call. And Dr. Yaden had some staggering information to share with us about the fact that he had uncovered research in the pharmaceutical industry that the research was done 15 years prior to the rollout of the shots and the publication was 12 years prior to the roll, rollout of the COVID shots. And it showed testicular and ovarian damage in every animal species studied. Well, at that moment, I knew why God had put me on that call because Dr. McCullough at the time was really not aware of my long background in climacteric and medicine dealing with the endocrine issues of aging from puberty to late life for my whole career. He knew me as someone involved in early COVID treatment. And Dr. Yeadon, Dr. Frost, and Dr. Hodkinson, and Dr. McCullough were all concerned about the COVID shot effects on fertility. And all of a sudden, I realized with a lightning bolt that God had put me in that meeting because of my unique 
career in medicine that literally God designed. I didn't, couldn't have planned it. There was no such specialty in the U.S. Because I said to the group of physicians at that moment, then I know why I'm here. And you guys need to understand that it's not just fertility at stake. It's the health of the entire human body in men and women throughout their lives if we damage the ovaries and testicles with these shots. And that led to many discussions personally with Dr. Eden over that summer. He was involved in our press conferences. He was very much a, an ally. He became chief scientific advisor for Truth for Health Foundation. We worked very closely together. And during those personal conversations, he would often share with me how, well, you talk about your faith, Dr. Lee, but I kind of grew away from the church. I've been disappointed in the church, and I really don't know that I believe in God. And later, he shared with me the story that he's going to tell you all today that showed me clearly God had reached him. And he now understood what we've been saying. This is an evil assault on life. Dr. Eden, I'm honored to be able to share this story with our listeners. I think it will inspire many people to hear about your journey. And so I'm oh, just you. honored that you are willing to share this personal experience with all of us. No, it's, a, it's always a pleasure speaking to you. And, uh, and also, I think, uh, I think it's an important thing to record. And as, as I mentioned to you when we were contemplating this, uh, you know, having been uh, a scientist lifelong, uh, there's a degree of nervousness about admitting to faith. Uh, because uh, a lot of my uh, self-worth perhaps has come from being you know, objective and I can demonstrate why I am saying what I'm saying. And then there's this, this other thing, <laughs> this other thing. It's like, it's kind of squishy, but it's, it's very real. And I, I will describe to, for your listeners that, that transition. Uh, but I just wanted to mention the, the, the background context, if, you know, we, uh, we treasure very much being rational and being able to defend and demonstrate to other people why we say what we say, where, where it's a matter of faith, uh, it's up to other people to decide if they, if they take anything from it or not. But in the end, since it's a personal experience, it, you know, it doesn't really matter it, whether people, what they think of it, but it's, it's definitely uh, it's it's very much part of my what's driving me over the last uh, two years or so. But but even before I had my my religious experience, shall we say, um, I, I was dedicated to trying to warn people, uh, to tell them the truth, and to warn them about bad things going on around them. Um, I don't really know where that comes from. Uh, my wife and I are both the same. We we've discussed this. We we really can't stand we can't stand bullying. You know, people being badly treated, unfairness is always something that, uh, you know, is, I just find it difficult to put up with. Um, when, when someone's powerful and they exploit other people, I can feel my goal rising, you know. <laughs> so I've always been like that. Um, I don't think that's necessarily religious. It's just a, like a values that I somehow, you know, got from being raised the way I was raised. 
Well, and I think that's important. And certainly what you've described since our many of conversations is, is actually bigger than that. And I, I would be, I really would like to hear about the experience. And I, I would describe it as religion is organized institutions created by man. Mm. Spirituality is our personal connection with God, our creator, and for Christians, our connection with Christ. So, so it is definitely, they are different. And faith is not necessarily the same thing as being religious. No. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I could just briefly just sort of color in the background a little bit so people know where I was coming from before I then had this, this interesting change. So I would describe myself as a, a unremarkable other than, you know, reasonably talented scientist and so on. But, you know, if you'd followed me at any point in my life, I would look kind of boring and law abiding and nothing, there's nothing, uh, nothing bad, but, but nothing outstanding in any way about, about me other than, you know, I was reasonably clever. That's all. Uh, my childhood was very strange. My mother died when I was 18 months old. Uh, my father was mostly absent. Uh, we had a stepmother who wasn't very interested. And this wasn't just me. It was my my two elder sisters, too. So I, I would say uh, when I was an adult, I, looking back on my childhood, I, I would say uh, my childhood was one of, uh, of complete neglect, really. It was uh, really quite shocking for a middle-class uh, household. I was never hit or starved or badly treated in any way but just completely disregarded um and what does that do it it prompts a person to be quite introspective and self-reliant you know you either fail or you become self-reliant so that's a that's a sort of odd upbringing um and i remember as a small child maybe six or seven years of age uh, we lived in a in a village in england in the south and i would hear the church bells tolling and I was just interested, and one, one day I walked up to the church with another friend from primary school, and we uh, timidly poked our head in around the back, and we could see a bunch of boys and girls singing. Um, and, of course, it was the church choir, and we both of us just listened and looked at each other and said, you know, we should, can we go, should we go and ask and see if we can join? And so I waited, we waited for like 40 minutes and waited for everybody to file out, and then we went up to see the, the vicar and, and said, can we join your choir? And it was more or less, do you, what do you, do you like singing? And it's like, I love singing. It's like, well, you know, come on Saturday then. And so <clears throat> for about five years, I was a, an enthusiastic amateur singer in, in a Church of England uh, church choir. We would have a couple of practices a week and then we would do weddings on a Saturday and then um, two services on a Sunday. And it, it just became something I liked to do. Nobody, nobody in my family went to church. Nobody in my family owned a, a Psalter or a Bible uh, or sang or anything. So, um, and in fact, if uh, uh, if the religious program was on as it used to be, I've forgotten this, it's disappeared, but uh, there would be a religious program on a Sunday evening. And if anything, there'd be kind of slightly snarky remarks about God botherers. So that was the kind of household I, I was brought up in. So I kind of, but I don't remember anything about faith, but I felt drawn to the community of singers. Uh, and I thoroughly, I still love to this day, you know, English, you know, plain song uh, and the great organ recitals. You know, they're just, just fantastic. You know, they can knock you. 
to put hairs on the back of your spine on on end when you listen to some of that stuff. I do remember that very well. Um, anyway, so um, uh, then when I got to my teens, um, my dad one day said, um, we're going to be emigrating to the US. I got a job there and uh, we wondered if you wanted to come. And it was quite clear he didn't want me to come. And, and I said, well, I thought I would finish my education here. And he said, oh, that's good, because we weren't thinking of bringing you. Um, so there you go, strange man. Uh, and about three weeks later, I was left on the pavement outside a complete stranger's house with a, a little leather case, uh, probably from the 1950s. I, I probably looked like a skinny human version of Paddington Bear. Um, and I, I had met this um, couple, a tiny little Jewish couple, and the lady Daphne was the social worker for my school, amongst other things. And by sheer coincidence, just around the same time my father had dropped his bombshell, she had gone to see the headmaster and said, well, Jonathan, you know, what have you got for me at the moment? And he pushed this bit of paper across the desk saying, you know, we've got a, we got a pupil here who's got no, no parents. Um, we don't know what to do. And apparently she picked up this bit of paper, she looked at this little, little picture and read the few lines and put the paper down. She looked at him and said, I'll have him. And that's how it was done in the 1970s. Obviously all the paperwork was filled in, but uh, that's how I got informally adopted as a, as a young teenager. And I lived with this Jewish family until I was, till I was um, 18. Um, then there was a slight complication that my father had been quite wealthy and the rules at the time in England uh, were that your the university grants were means tested and that meant family means tested and uh, the local authority refused to give me a grant and which means I couldn't go to university and I remember the many calls you know my foster mother speaking politely but firmly to my father and it was like if you won't pay for him at least damn well disown him you know she she realized that if he would sign an affidavit to say he's not my son and hasn't been a dependent for years that would have been enough to get a grant and he wouldn't even do that after all this time and um anyway so it worked out wonderful because uh i went to work for three years 18 to 21 um, and the rule then was if you have paid uk tax for three years you qualify as an as a mature student and so i went to university three years late at 21 i got a better grant than other people because i was a mature student and uh you know, being a little bit older than, than all my peers was probably slightly helpful. And I remember that because it was, it seemed so unlikely I would even have got to university. I did manual work, by the way, for two of the three years, hard hand steel toe cap boots. So I was, when I arrived at university, I knew I was there to work hard. This is my chance. And I wasn't going to go back into sweeping warehouse floors and sampling goods inward. So I worked like a demon and you know, I did very well. I scored the highest award they'd ever, ever given in that topic. Um, and the first coincidence here is that I could have just studied plain biochemistry, which most people did, but I elected to take a, a, a double major, I took toxicology. And that was mechanisms of how drugs produce pathology. And those of you who've heard me speak will understand immediately why that's significant, because um, it's relevant to the vaccines. So anyway, finishing university, I did a degree and a PhD. Second coincidence, my PhD was in the effects of opiate drugs like morphine on respiration. And for those of you who understand what's happened in care homes around the world, you'll understand the second just amazing coincidence. Um, and then when I finished my PhD, I joined the drug industry um, and I worked uh, there for whatever it was, um, uh, 
20 something years um, uh, and finishing as Pfizer's vice president and head of worldwide research and early development for respiratory analogy. Um, and then when I left in 2011, because they closed their research site in the UK, I became an independent. So I, I consulted to 30 drug companies, biotechs mostly. And at the same time in parallel, I started my own biotech based on drugs that I was able to spin out from, from Pfizer's closing site with the support of management, of course. I raised some venture capital. I, I led the company as CEO 2012 to 2017, and it, and it was acquired by Novartis for a lot of money. And so at the age of 57, I found myself reasonably wealthy and uh, uh, you know just really enjoying early retirement. And, I should mention just briefly in 2016, I had a really nasty illness that nearly killed me and I didn't die. And I expected I was going to at some point. And then when I realized I wasn't after about six months, um, I can I can assure you it's I've seen it described in books of people who've been in battle that the feeling you get when you've come under fire and missed <laughs> apparently is a remarkable feeling. Well, that's probably pretty much how I felt that towards the end of 2016, when it was obvious that I was gonna make it, I carry a disability, but I, I'm not gonna die. Um, life became wonderful. You look at the leaves, you look at the insects, you smell the air completely differently when you might've lost it compared with when you take it for granted. Uh, and I had a great uh, three years or so, and just really getting into, um, planning for long, a long, comfortable retirement with my lovely wife, Joanna, who have been married, married, we've been together 40 years this August. Um, and, uh, and then unfortunately, you know, COVID fell out, out of the sky on us, uh, beginning of 2020. And um, my career in what I describe as rational based drug design, and understanding how tests work, you know, measuring things, determining concentrations of things. Uh, and the fact that I had kind of almost effectively retired. I was doing a little bit of light consulting for a couple of clients. It meant that when I, uh, when this was announced, I was able to give it my attention because it's in my wheelhouse, right? It's a respiratory illness, you know, but we're talking about immunity. We're talking about testing. And then later we're talking about vaccines. So I kind of settled in to watch the show, but I didn't well, get Well, Dr. Ying, <laughs> let's talk about what happened yeah. at that point in the second half of the show. Yes. Uh, because you're right. You did not get to sit back and watch the show. This is Dr. Lee for America. We're going to continue this personal conversation with Dr. Eden right after the break. Check out our website, www.truthforhealth.org. And Dr. Eden is one of our core advisors and works with me on the whistleblower vaccine report every week as well. So we'll be right back after the break. Welcome back to the second half of the Whistleblower Report, Faith Report, with Dr. Mike Eden sharing his personal journey through the COVID pandemic years and his Damascan moment. So Dr. Eden, when COVID hit, you thought you were gonna sit back and watch it and yeah. Yeah. your unique background, which I think you came to see that something bigger than you had designed that unique career. Mm. So talk to us about what happened during 
COVID, because I do remember some of our conversations. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be careful. Try not to use up all of the time, because if people have listened to me before, they'll, they'll know all this detail. But so quite early on, uh, it probably in late January or in February, I think I was watching one of these evening, it was a daily press conference, the Prime Minister and, and Chief Scientific Advisor, who I knew, by the way, I worked with Sir Patrick Vallance when he was Pat Vallance, he was in the next lab to me 30 years ago. So I, I wouldn't say I knew him, but I, I knew who that person was. And we'd had a professional connection a long time ago. Um, and sometimes the Chief Medical Officer, Chris Whitty, and so on. And they were discussing what might happen. You know, this, there was this virus coming from China. And, and every now and again, they would say things that just maybe take a double take it's like he just said what and it's uh for example this idea that um if you if you have definitely had a particular pathogen you will develop immunity to it and so you should not be able to be exposed again you shouldn't get the same exactly the same illness again uh where it comes to infectious uh, agents and so when some of these people were expressing doubts uh i thought well i know you don't i know you don't believe that you've read the same primers as me so I, i became Prime to the possibility that I wasn't being told the truth by, you know, by by, by February, um, and then when March came around and the Prime Minister Boris Johnson came on the TV and in his heavy Churchillian ma- manner said, "I must tell you, uh, uh, people of you know citizens of Britain, you must stay at home. It's like lockdown." Um, and I've described to my wife that they're not going to do this. You know, we all know. I explained to her why it couldn't possibly work. And just very briefly, people without who people without symptoms can't infect other people. Uh, and so why would you lock in their homes or require people who are completely healthy to stay at home? I knew it was absurd. And then they did it. And and Joanna reminds me months later, said I was running up and down the stairs talking to myself. And she said, You were muttering something like, We are in so much trouble several times. Uh, so I think at that point, I'd no idea what was going on. But I knew that what was going on was was unprecedented because the same thing had happened a couple of weeks earlier in Italy, uh, a week earlier in Feb in France, and over the next couple of weeks the world went into quotes lockdown. And of course, at this point, I'm now I'm now doctor scientist again. I'm thinking, what the hell is going on? Um, and I point out to people that when your country does something a bit stupid. Uh, you might blame uh, a politician or two or an advisor or two, a lobbyist or whatever. When when scores of countries in the world simultaneously do that wrong thing, wh- when it's never been mooted before, you, you have to concede this is a supranational uh, influence. Now, I don't know what the body was. Could have been WHO or the UN or the World Economic Forum. Well, let's, let's get to your experience, yeah. though, when you uh, realized it was absolutely. not just a global uh, exactly. political experience. Yeah. It was a global spiritual battle. Uh, absolutely. So, again, as, so as, the year, as the year progressed, I, I could see uh, the use of what others have described as military-grade propaganda or psychological operations, psyops, our own so fifth generation warriors have been unleashed by the government on their own people. I, I was smart enough to realize that we were under attack. Uh, I spoke to a couple of other people who were psychologists that, that knew this too. And they knew, they knew that this was an abuse of the trade, as it were, the profession that they had. But when, you tried to, when anyone tried to speak out, the, the media would censor you and you would be attacked. So 
long before we got to the vaccines being ready, strange things were happening. Mass testing, I would say fraudulent PCR testing. Again, I could use all day. But so we get through to the towards the end of the year, 2020. And all year I've had this horrible foreboding because we were being promised a vaccine uh, and pretty much lockdowns intermittent until this vaccine comes. Well, I, I knew it was completely uh, impossible to invent, test, do the research and development, manufacture and gain regulatory approval for a proper product in under about five, six years with a following wind. If you were lucky, I think one of the fastest ever was like five or six years. So the idea they were going to do this in like 10 months, I knew, I knew that meant very, very bad things. Um, and uh, I, I wrote a public letter with, with a German public health doctor uh, in December before any of the vaccines had their authorization to say these things are, in, are inherently dangerous and they should not be authorized and unleashed on the public. Um, and, but they were. And then I worked with a number of groups uh, to try and warn people that because we could see people being injured and people dying and others would see them as coincidence, but we were expecting them. And so when they happened, uh, then we, we knew it was causative. And, and at that point, I think around that time, probably it was around that time, end of the 2020, I had all of the pieces I needed if I was willing to let them fall into place to realize that we were being subject to basically there'd been a coup d'etat of the world and, and, and evil individuals were planning to inject things that I've described and I warned beforehand were toxic by design. And I felt a chill most of the time. I, I was sleeping very badly, very badly. And I, I can't remember how long this went on, but certainly when I first spoke to you, uh, Dr. Lee, I think I was extremely troubled. Like I'd found further uh, research that told me, oh my God, it's not just acute toxicity, it's reproductive you know, toxicity as well. So it was definitely summer of that year. And this is summer where, this 2021 is where, this, was yeah, when I know, summer you were sharing a lot of this uh, with me. Absolutely. And so, um, and so this is what I remember. It was, it was hot. It was summertime. I was sleeping terribly badly. And, and I remember one night I, I opened my eyes, just bolt open and, you know, not 10 feet from me. I, I, I sense something dark and malevolent. I mean, really frightening. I've never had this before, not since I was maybe five years old, you know, when you get frightened about monsters under the bed. I, like, I'm a 50, whatever it was, I, nearly a 60-year-old guy, a rational person. I open my eyes and it's like, there's something evil in this room. And so I got up and um, put my head back in. It had vanished at this point. So I was awake and I, so I paced around my house in the dark. Um for a while you know i had some music playing on my phone just and i just thought just you know calm down you know i was trying to get my thoughts in order I mean, why have you woken and why have you had this strange this strange apparition as it were it wasn't something i could see i could feel it you know something really horrible i didn't get an answer i went back to bed same thing happened the next day and then the same thing happened again on the third day uh so powerful uh, i you know i just jumped out of bed and there i was again i was in the back room, and there's a full moon. And I was looking out over the garden. And uh, that was the moment that all the pieces came together. And I kind of knew what was what's happening. 
um, that it is, as I just summarized very lightly, but I hadn't, I hadn't done it for myself at that point. And it was like someone has taken a lot of time to plan essentially a, a coup d'etat and then under guise of injecting you to protect you from a, 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 a fairly minor disease for most people, unless they're very elderly and vulnerable, they're going to inject them with something that's been designed to injure or kill them and to potentially to damage their fertility and so that was the that was the explanation for this evil that is an evil manifestation in the world the way i've just said that imagine if you were in those planning meetings you know that that's not that's not what people do that's that's not what ordinary people do the ordinary people i know would either leave such a meeting and never come back you know what the hell was that or if they were me i would probably have said what's going on here you know this is crazy you know so you'd either call it or leave it not very many people would stay and uh, and join it uh, but i'm afraid a large number of people at some level have been involved in this plan but the, the the amazing thing which i didn't say was that on the third day when i when it when the reality came crashing through when i could no longer hold all the separate parts and i let them come come to uh, all together so i could see what was happening is this is this is the thing that's most incredible thing i feel embarrassed describing it in that moment the evil left the room and a lightness passed into me uh, i'm getting slightly choked as you can tell and uh, nothing was said no promises were made um no 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 fierce demands were made on me either but there was just an absolute certainty that I've got to do whatever I can to make sure that um, people get to, get to know what this is. And I'm basically, it's more or less follow the instructions. You've got this. That was That's as close to in English as I can get to the instruction. But um, at that moment, my fear, my fear disappeared. And although I've been angry a lot of the time, I have been angry a lot. And I am angry. I'm, I'm furious. Who do these people think they are? Uh, I I rarely feel fear anymore. And uh, my wife was talking to me about that the other day. She said, do you know what the most common exhortation in the Bible is? I said, I've no idea. She said, it's be not afraid. Isn't that something? She's I, exactly uh, yeah. right. And, and I've, exactly been, right. I've been so long, so long away from contact with the creator that um, I feel very sad about that. But I'm incredibly pleased that I feel incredibly privileged. Um, my my life over the last three years has been very, very difficult and complicated. <clears throat> uh, and Joanna and I have travelled around the world, and you, Dr. Lee, helped us, and Dr. Simone Gold helped us get to the states. Um, and and, and we I did what I could for over a year, you know, giving interviews and speaking to people, and then I felt the call of family I, I was away from my children and grandchildren and and listening to the, the voice inside there was I didn't see a compulsion to stay anymore I think in other words I've either done I've probably done what I could do I've no idea how useful it'll turn out to be but um, basically it was um, you didn't need to head back home and I'll tell you one thing that's just an amazingly amazing coincidence it really is I thought okay now I can just go on to a, a low throttle uh, I got home and within a week the town we had moved to, Canterbury in Kent, we used to live in the countryside not far away, but we, we bought a house on the edge of the city. Within a week, 
Canterbury, along with Oxford, gets nominated as uh, 15 minute cities. Uh, and Joanna said to me, <laughs> she said, you know, who got, you know what you've got to do now, don't you? <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I haven't, I haven't done anything yet with 15 minute cities, but honestly, I'm not being left alone. And it's, I do feel it's a privilege. It, it really is. How many people get, who, how many people get the background I get? I had um, the education. I could easily have not had one at all. And the subjects I picked and the specifics. Oh, I forgot to mention one thing. The other weird habit from a solitary young man. I read literally the entire canon of post-war American science fiction books between 1972 and 1976. And why is that relevant? Because what is going on when I describe it to people, they say either A, it's a conspiracy theory, or B, that sounds like a sci-fi novel. And it's like, sort of, doesn't it? And I think I think I found it not difficult to allow the pieces to fall into place because I've read plots like this. And a lot of the writers of sci-fi were religious people. Where did they get their insights to write about dystopian things and weird things? Well, there you go. So, well, my favourite author is Philip K. Dick, who wrote the books that turned into things like Blade Runner and many other sci-fi films, Minority Report. So that imagination produced those weird situations and their resolutions. I, I was immersed in that um, at, when I wasn't being educated. So anyway, so that's that's kind of my journey. And then somebody recently, uh, yeah, her name, her name is Brusha, Brusha Weisberger, little tiny little Jewish lady in New York who, who inspired me very early on. She was standing on pretty much on steps on street corners in Manhattan, handing out leaflets and, and trying to speak to people against the, the wind. And people would be dashing past and not really paying any attention. She was out there every day to try and wake her community and protect her children. And she contacted me a few months ago and said, uh, you need to tell people that one of the things that has allowed us to go so badly wrong is that we're not, we have lost touch with our creator. And to the extent people have contact, they need to be reminded of it because that's what helps you orientate. Where else do you get orientation from the, B, the BBC, the media, you know, your social influencers, the church? They shut people out. There are no good sources now. There are no reliable sources of correct orientation. I don't think, and you know, maybe if, if you've got a good family and really good friends, you probably get it from them. So many people are separate. They live with their faces in their black rectangles. Um, they are vulnerable to being, uh, uh, having their perceptions distorted and they are being distorted. This is, this is not, censorship is not just what they're doing with, with the tech companies. They're also doing manipulation, you know, psychological operations of people's perceptions. So uh, Mrs. Weisberger said to me, remind people, please, Mike, that, uh, and say it yourself that to the extent you have faith, you should ask people to look to their own faith, look back in their past. Did they, did they have it? If they, if they had it in the past, can they reconnect? Because that way, she said, you can orientate better in the world. And that was really what I wanted to share. Well, that is so powerfully important because it is faith over fear mm. that is going to help people survive this chaos and this attack because this is an evil agenda to use the weapon of fear 
to destroy people's psychological health and their spiritual connection with their creator. We are humans are mind, body, and spirit, and health of all three is critical for our overall health, but it is our soul connection with our creator that is at the center of the intersection of all three aspects of how we are created. And Dr. Eden, transhumanism fundamentally Mm. is Satan's plan or Lucifer's plan to destroy humans as God designed us mm-hmm. so, so that we lose our connection with our creator. That, that is what transhumanism is all about. Now, this was going on biblically during the time of Noah. And that was part of what led to God's decision to cleanse the earth in the great flood. People who want to know more about that can go and read the full story of Noah and the Nephilim, the fallen, uh, the fallen angels who were attacking God's design of life, much as we see today. So you have been clearly called as one of the watchmen on the wall. And that, that powerful experience was one where you felt the presence of evil. You know what's interesting? Mm. Around the same time, Dr. McCullough, who did not know me well at the time, actually shared with me that he had the experience of being in a studio to do an interview, and he felt an an evil presence sitting in the corner disrupting trying to disrupt that interview wow i i have experienced that you've experienced it he has shared that he experienced it so i think all of us Mm. are clearly convicted that god is using us and god designed the threads of our careers so that we would be ready for such a time as this I don't have yes. any doubt about it. No, I, I don't. I, at first, I did think, well, it's a bit odd. I, I knew something very strange had happened to me those nights in the summer of 2021. You know, it was profound, it was unmistakable uh, feelings, uh, both of evil and of something good, as it were, something, yeah, something uh, completely outside of me and. Uh, I, and I was com- I was comfortable uh, comfortable um, uh, willing to accept that I didn't have, well, it, didn't have, didn't have any difficulty accepting it at all. It was uh, okay, right? All right. Now I see why I'm so just obsessed with what's going on. This is a, this is a huge battle, and uh, uh, I think the the extinguishing, the near extinguishing, not completely, but the near extinguishing of of fear was the most profound thing. For, for example, anyone who's ever been in moderate to severe pain and, and been given a you know, powerful pain reliever, when you feel that pain melting away, it's, it is pretty remarkable. And, it's, and essentially, uh, I think faith can dissolve, faith dissolves fear. Um, I, and uh, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what happens to one's corporeal body. I don't particularly want to want to die early but eventually you know your life comes to an end and it's what are you going to do when you're here 
Are you going to be you know, on your knees or uh, hiding your face and hoping things will go by? Are you going to stand up and, and face uh, and, and speak plainly to uh, people behaving badly? Well, I'm going to do the latter. That's what I've been doing. You know, if they want to come and get me, then they've, they've got every cho choice to do it. Um, I don't fear that. I don't think it's terribly likely. Uh, the tech censorship is is the equivalent of uh, what would have happened to a person in this situation in medieval times that had got rid of us. But nowadays they can just use tech to do that um, and, uh, and smearing, you know, reputational damage. A lot of people I know have said to me, I, I know something bad is happening. I hadn't worked it out in detail, but when you described it, I can, I can see where we are. But I, I've not spoken out because... I'm frightened that you know uh, my employer will fire me, my family or friends may reject me, uh, or people will laugh at me. And I, I've said to them, if you are feeling those emotions about speaking out, imagine what it's going to be like if you don't speak out. If you don't speak out, the the, the people who have planned this, the beings who have planned this, and are working very, very assiduously, they have all the resources, the physical resources, money, tech, and so on. I, I think if we don't stop them actively, they will succeed. So, uh, and then often people will, will say, well, you know, I'll stick with the narrative. You know, your, your stuff sounds kind of crazy, even, you know. And I would say, it's not symmetrical. I'll point out this fact. If you, if you accept the government's narrative and I'm right, you're going to lose your freedom and probably your life. If, you've, if you do, if you listen to Dr. Lee and me and Peter McCulloch and others, because uh, I think they are telling you the truth. The worst that will happen is if we're wrong, is you get laughed at, you know, because the world will be normal, right? If, if we're completely wrong, it'll all return to normal. But the idea that it's safer to adhere to the government narrative, I just demonstrated, if you follow it, and I'm right, and I think I am, you will lose your freedom and probably your life. It's the most stupid thing you could choose to do to continue to adhere to the narrative. It's not symmetrical risks. So I'm just, I'm pleading with people who are a little bit frightened of speaking out, keeping the head down, hoping it'll all go away. It's not going to go away, right? You can make it go away. It's not going to go away. So that's it's what we need to do. It's actually escalating. It's actually escalating. You and I it both is. know that. We, we have do. the day. We see what's coming because we're, we're watching what they're doing. They're already yeah. announcing the next pandemic. We are being flooded with military age males from China across the U.S. southern border, drugs coming across that are killing people, fentanyl from yeah. China, killing yeah. hundreds of thousands of Americans, diseases coming across the border. We are being yeah. invaded in our yeah. country. Yeah, and same thing, same thing, our... in, same thing in Britain. Uh, same thing in Britain. There are very large numbers I think probably hundreds of thousands at least of military age males, um, mostly young and occasionally accompanied by someone who's like middle age, you know, in their 30s, 40s. And there have been some videos where people have interviewed and it clearly is one of them is an officer and the other is our younger soldiers. These people have come from all over the world, but often um, Afghanistan um, and other places. And why are they there? No one's saying, but they've been put up in, Seriously, in hotels, the commercially viable hotels have been acquired for up to two years by the government at ludicrous rent. So they basically have gone to the proprietor and said, you know, this is how much you would have made if you 
operate normally, we will give you 2x that sum uh, and it's guaranteed. Will you turn your hotel over to us and they give them the keys and leave? Well, this uh, is why we are in a battle. Every single town, in almost every town. This is not conspiracy theory. They, if it's, you go it's and, happening in the U.S. It's in and... Ireland, it's in Wales, it's in England, it's in Scotland, uh, and it's yes, happening in the U.S. Stand against evil. Silence in the face of evil is itself evil.